Thank you, Christian. Good morning and welcome to each of you, especially if you're visiting with us. I'm not the usual guy up here anymore. I was for many, many years, but um, Pastor Dave is in California with a sick family, and uh, they're due to the death of his father, so they should be returning to Flagstaff uh, tomorrow, we hope. And um, if you're new, there is an outline that I did have. It's not in my Bible, but anyway, at the exits, you can get an outline or a printed sermon booklet. And there's also a handout I'm going to refer to in uh, the message that I handed out last Sunday in the message. And uh, it's got on one side spiritual diagnostic questions and then on the other side, biblical character qualities, and you're free to grab those. There's a bunch back here at this exit. If you need a Bible, lift your hand, and one of the ushers will get you a, a Bible. We're going to be in the book of Hosea. Um, that's in the Old Testament after Ezekiel, Daniel, and then Hosea, and chapter 7. And so you can be opening your Bible to that text um, if need be. Somebody need a Bible? Lift your hand. <clears throat> going to read Hosea chapter 7, starting at verse 8 down through verse 10. I'm using the New American Standard Bible. The ESV is pretty close, I think. Ephraim mixes himself with the nations. Ephraim has become a cake not turned. Strangers devour his strength, yet he doesn't know it. Gray hairs are also sprinkled on him, and yet he does not know it. Though the pride of Israel testifies against him, yet they have not returned to the Lord their God nor have they sought him for all this. Lord, this is your inspired word given centuries ago through your prophet. We pray that your Holy Spirit would now take it and apply it to each and every one of us as each one has need, that your word would not return to you empty without accomplishing the purpose for which you're sending it forth in Jesus' name. Amen. Stories told about a man who always took pride in his head of thick black hair, but it began falling out, and finally there was just one strand left. Well, one morning he awoke and looked down at his pillow in horror because there was that final strand of hair he leaped out of bed and ran down and screamed at his wife, Martha, Martha, I'm bald. Well, you say, wait a minute, it doesn't happen that way. Uh, no man fails to notice his own baldness before the final hair falls out, does he? But I speak from experience here. Back in the early 1980s, I actually preached this message first in about 1984 or 5, I can't remember, but back in the early 80s, I was looking in the mirror one morning, and I noticed all these hair 
were down here on my forehead. And my first thought was, uh, I'm growing new hair down there. And then the sickening reality hit me. Uh, These guys were not pioneers going into new territory. They were survivors. All the rest had fled north. And uh, I realized I was beginning to go bald. Same thing happens with turning gray. Do you remember your first gray hair? Horrors. You know, maybe you plucked it out, and then another one came, and you plucked it out, and pretty soon you realized, if I keep doing that, baldness is going to be my next problem. So maybe you opted for the the Clairol solution and dyed it, or maybe you decided, well, I look more mature this way, and you came to accept it. But nobody goes gray without knowing it, or do they? Well, the prophet Hosea wrote just about such a thing happening to the nation Israel there in verse 9. He says, gray hairs are also sprinkled upon him, and yet he does not know it. And the prophet was not talking about physical grayness, but spiritual grayness. The nation was in spiritual decline, and there were signs of weakness and old age on them, and yet they were oblivious to their condition. You know, it's easy to deceive myself about how old I am because Marla and I like to hike, and I'll think about a hike we did years ago and think, yeah, I can do that one again. And then we try it, and my body starts screaming at my brain saying, what in the world were you thinking? You know, and I I always joke with Marla and say, since the last time we did this trail, they came in and made it steeper than it was the first time we did it. But, you know, getting old and not realizing it is easy. So whether it's increasing gray hair, which should be obvious, or my brain deceiving my aging body about how old I am, Hosea's point here is that people who profess to know God can in reality be in spiritual decline and yet be oblivious to what's happening to them. And he's asking us to ask ourselves, is it possible that you're turning gray spiritually and yet you haven't noticed it? The Apostle Paul exhorted the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, he said, test yourselves. Test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or have you not noticed, or do you not recognize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you unless you fail the test? And so it's helpful on occasion to take a careful look into the mirror, and God's word is our mirror, to see how we really are and to ask the question, hmm, have you noticed your gray hair? Now, Hosea the prophet prophesied just before the fall of the northern kingdom to Assyria in 722 B.C. And that last half of the 8th century B.C., according to the ESV study Bible, was the most turbulent and trying time in the history of Israel prior to the captivity. 
Of the six kings who reigned in the 30 years prior to the fall of the kingdom, and by the way, by Ephraim, Hosea means the northern kingdom, Israel, but of the six kings that ruled in that kingdom before the fall, four of them came into office by assassinating their predecessor. So it was a turbulent time where somebody assassinates somebody, comes to office, the next guy assassinates him, comes to office, that kind of thing is going on. And the nation professed to be God's people, and they went through the outward motions of religion, but morally and spiritually, they were really bankrupt, and they worshiped gods of their own making. You remember that the first king of the northern, uh, when they split, set up uh, calves in two places and told Israel to worship these calves as their god. Um, and so they defiled themselves with adultery, with violence. Um, it, was, it was a corrupt time, and yet they claimed to know God. And so the prophet asked the question of them and us, have you noticed your spiritual gray hair? And he makes the point that mixture with the world and half-baked commitment leads to unconscious spiritual decline. Uh, the word mixture and the word half-baked are baking terms. Uh, he mentions bakers up in verse 6. And Ephraim had, like if you've made bread, you've got to mix the dough together to get it all right before you bake it. And that's how Ephraim was mixed with the nations. Or they had become, another analogy, like a half-baked pancake and because of that, the nation did not recognize the signs of spiritual decline. So first of all, let's look at the fact that mixture with the world leads to um, unconscious spiritual decline. When God called Israel to be his covenant people, he declared over and over to them, Leviticus has a number of the same repeated reference, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And to be holy means to be separate unto God from the world, to be conformed to God's character and not to the world and how they live, to be distinct in your behavior and your thinking from those around you. But instead of being distinct, Israel had drifted into this pagan lifestyle of the nations around them. They worshiped their gods, they set up their idols, they imitated their immoral ways, and they disregarded the law of God. Now before we cluck our tongues and say, oh my, my, for shame, for shame, I think we need to acknowledge holiness is just as much a problem for the evangelical church of our day as it was for Israel in that day. Uh, maybe more so. The New Testament repeatedly warns against this danger. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 and 15 says, Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial, that is the devil? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? 
Or in James 4.4, he doesn't pull his punches. He says, you adulteresses, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17 says, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world, he says, is passing away, and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God, the text literally reads, abides forever. So the New Testament is drawing a pretty distinct line and saying you, you can't have one foot on the shore and one on the boat. Either you love God or you love the world. And the boat's left the dock, so which one are you going to be on? And clearly, uh, we are not to love the world. You say, well, what is worldliness? Mainly, it's a matter of the heart. It's not a matter of do's and don'ts and all that. As I grew up, there were the filthy five, you know, don't drink, don't dance, don't smoke. Well, there were a couple others. Don't play cards. Don't go to movies. You know, it's not that. It's your heart before God. And if your heart is captured by the world, then you're going to love the things of the world. And if your heart is captured by the love of God, you're going to be drawn to him and the things of God. Um, the only way that your heart can be transformed to not love the world and to love God is through the new birth, through repenting of your sin, coming to faith in Jesus at the cross, asking God to cleanse you from your sin, as we sang just a few moments ago, and uh, then as a new creature in Christ, beginning to be transformed through the renewing of your mind through God's word. So to be worldly is to operate then on the same principles as the world does. It is to think and act out of selfishness, out of greed, out of pride, personal ambition, lust, all of those things. It is to have selfish desires for what you don't have and Pride for what you do have as if you yourself got it rather than God. And rather than living every day to please God who examines the heart, uh, to live in the world is basically trying to impress people who view things outwardly. I like this definition of worldliness that I read in David Wells. He says, worldliness is that set of practices in a society, its values and ways of looking at life, that makes sin look normal and righteousness look strange. Isn't that a good description? And that's what's going on in our day now. Uh, many years before the internet and cell phones were invented, a writer with the uh, radio Bible class, a man named Dave Brannon, wrote this. He said, suppose you want to change the thinking of an entire nation. Let's say, for example, you wanted to make the people think that red is green. How would you do it? Well, one idea would be to have, and back then, I guess 60% of the people attended church, 
Now it's much lower, but one idea would be to have about 60% of the citizens meet together once a week in some little used buildings and take about an hour to convince them of your idea. But that probably wouldn't work. A better plan would be to have them spend eight to 10 hours a day sitting in front of a television set. Today, you could throw in computers, cell phones, internet, all of that. Make the folks watch a lot of programs in which famous people demonstrate that red is green. In addition, make sure the citizens are plugged into a radio the rest of the time so you could have some people singing loud songs about the lovely green shade of red. Also, set up thousands of theaters where people could relax and be entertained by laughing at the absurd idea that red is red. And as a supplement, get your message into books, magazines, and newspapers. Well, that was prophetic, really, of what has happened to almost the entire world with homosexuality and all of this transgender stuff going on. That's normal. And if you object to that, you're the abnormal one. You're the weirdo because everybody knows that red is green. That's what our society tells us. There was an insane headline in the paper last week. I, I had to read it and reread it, and then I figured out what they were doing. Um, the man that shot up the nightclub in Colorado, the gay nightclub, the headline read, they were beaten up. And I thought, there was a gang that got beaten up? And then I read the article, and the man claims to be non-binary, and his pronouns are they and them. And so the headline, they were beaten up, meant he, singular, was beaten up. But they're totally changing the English language to say, you know, red is no longer red, folks. Red is green. He is they. And they got beaten up. It's nonsense. It's utter Nonsense. All the English teachers at the university should rise up in horror, but they're not because it's politically correct to say red is green now. And that's exactly what's happened. And the scary thing is many supposedly Christian churches, some here in Flagstaff, are buying into that message and they're installing unrepentant homosexual people as clergy and they are welcoming unrepentant homosexuals as members, that is to be mixed up with the world. And it's happening all around us. Isaiah 5.20 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and su sweet for bitter, and so both Hosea and Isaiah want us to examine our lifestyle, our values, our goals, our relational patterns and say, do they come from God's word or have we gotten mixed up with the world? Worldliness is pervasive. It is all around us. And if we allow ourselves to be needed together with the world, we're growing spiritually gray and not even knowing it. And so as you think about our text, ask yourself, am I growing in holiness before the Lord? And if not, examine your priorities. I talked about that last week. Examine your schedule. 
uh, cut back on the things that are squeezing you into the world's mold and replace them with things that will help you grow in godliness. There's a second factor, Hosea says, involved in this unconscious spiritual decline, and that is half-baked commitment. Half-baked commitment leads to unconscious spiritual decline. Verse 8, Ephraim has become a cake not turned. He's referring to uh, they bake bread, and we've seen this in Asia, uh, like a pancake you bought maybe in the store, non-bread. It's like a big flat pancake about that thick. And what Hosea is saying is, they burned it on one side and not flipped it, so it's doughy on the other side. It'd be like if you went into, you know, Denny's or House of Pancakes and ordered some pancakes, and it came out, and they were scorched on the bottom and not even flipped and not cooked on top. You'd say, this is useless. I can't eat this. And that's what Hosea is saying. Israel was like that. They were half-baked in their commitment to the Lord. They had the garb of religion, uh, but underneath they had a heart of perversion. So they had profession, but no practice, belief without behavior. They had a creed, but no conduct that matched it. And so their religion was just, in our terms, a go-to-Sunday thing. Didn't affect Monday through Saturday kind of living. Uh, and they wanted God, it says down in verse 14 of um, chapter 7, God says, they don't cry to me from their heart when they wail on their beds. For the sake of grain and new wine, they assemble themselves and turn away from me. So in other words, they wanted God to give them all the goodies, but they didn't want God. And so often, even Christians can do that. They want God to give them health and wealth and this and that and answer all their prayers. But they're really not interested in God. They just want the goodies. God can go back on the shelf. Now, there's no worse place to be. In the book of Revelation, the church of Laodicea was like that. It wasn't that they were against God. It's just that they weren't wholeheartedly for God. And God says in Revelation 3, 15 and 16, I would that you were cold or hot. And by cold, he doesn't mean spiritually cold. He means cold water is refreshing. Hot water is useful at times, but lukewarm water? Blech. And God says, I'll vomit you out of my mouth because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold. And so a lukewarm Christian is like Hosea's half-baked pancake uh, they make a semblance of commitment, and yet they're useless to God. And how can you be a testimony for Jesus Christ if you have one foot in both worlds? Because the world is expert at seeing hypocrisy, even though a believer doesn't. Remember the story of Jonah? God told Jonah, go to Nineveh, which would be like saying today, uh, go to North Korea or Russia or China or one of America's enemies. Go there and uh, call them to repentance. And Jonah said, bye. And he took off and got a ship heading in the opposite direction to Tarshish. And uh, he gets on the ship. And uh, by the way, it's interesting when you study the book of Jonah, everything in the book obeys God except Jonah. The wind obeys God and kicks up the storm. 
Uh, the sailors try to obey God. Later in the book, the gourd obeys God. The worm obeys God. Everything's obeying God except Jonah. So anyway, God sends a storm. And the soldiers, they're a bunch of pagans, and they cast lots to say, who's responsible for this? And it falls on Jonah. The lots obeyed God. <laughs> There's the man. And so they pepper him with questions. Who are you? You know, where are you from? What do you do for a living? And uh, Jonah says, well, I'm a Hebrew, and I'm a prophet of the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land, and I'm trying to flee from his presence. And then the soldier's response is classic in Jonah 1.10. They say, how could you do this? <laughs> they saw through it. How in the world could you try to flee from your God? If he's the one who made the heavens and the sea and the dry land and everything. And so Jonah didn't see how silly his behavior was, but these pagan soldiers did. And so Jonah's point, I mean, uh, Hosea's point is that Half-baked commitment leads to this unconscious spiritual decline where you end up being a hypocrite, and you don't see it, but the world sure does, and so you're useless to God as useless as a one-sided baked pancake. So God wants us to hold his mirror, his word, up to ourselves, and say, how has my commitment to Jesus Christ been in this past year? You know, look at your schedule. How do you spend your time? Look at your spending. How do you spend your money? And don't become a cake, not half-baked half cake, cake not turned. Now, unconscious spiritual decline is marked by several telltale signs, and I'll just mention five here as we um, close the message. The first one, unconscious spiritual decline involves a gradual loss of strength. In other words, there are no spiritual blowouts. There are only slow leaks. And that's why it's hard to detect. You know, you're driving down the road and you get a blowout, you know it. You got a slow leak and you don't know it until the little light comes on on your dashboard and says, check tire pressure. And usually that's wrong anyway. But... Uh, Hosea says in verse 9, strangers devour his strength, and yet he does not know it. And he's referring there to the surrounding nations, because by Hosea's time, Assyria was a powerful force up to the northeast, and they demanded tribute from Israel, and it had happened for so long that the Israelites just thought, this is normal. Yeah, it's normal. You've got a powerful enemy. Pay him tribute. They had forgotten the glory days under David and Solomon when Israel was strong and when other nations came and paid tribute to Israel. But you see, it had happened gradually over the years, and so like the frog in the kettle, they just kind of got used to it and thought, yeah, yeah, this is normal. And so the nation was kind of like me when they think, I'm strong, I'm young, but you're really not can't do what you used to do. Are you strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, as Ephesians 6.10 exhorts you to be? And the answer depends on, do you experience consistent spiritual victory over your sin on the thought level? That's where it all begins. 
do you consistently rely on the promises of God's word for strength? What about your communion with God? Is it daily and vital and real or just kind of a formality maybe? You know, Samson had dabbled in the world so long that when Delilah finally cut his hair and his strength was gone, she cried out, Samson, the Philistines are on you. And he rose up like in old times to fight him. But the Lord had departed from Samson even though he didn't know it. And so it's a gradual loss of strength that comes on. Secondly, unconscious spiritual decline involves a watered-down view of sin and holiness. These people were involved in horrible sins. When you go back to Hosea chapter 4, verse 11, there was harlotry and wine. And my people consult their wooden idols, God says, and their diviner's wand informs them. And a spirit of harlotry has led them astray. And he goes on to say how they offer sacrifices on the tops of mountains and burn incense and all these things that God did not um, ordain. And so they were quite a ways away from the Lord. And even the priests in chapter 4, Hosea says in verse 8, the priests feed on the sin of my people and direct their desire toward their iniquity. In other words, um, the people, when they sinned, had to bring a sin offering. The priests got to eat it. And so they were going, hey, business is great. Keep on sinning, folks, and bring those gifts into the, the temple so we can eat all the food we want. And so even spiritual leaders are not exempt from this unconscious spiritual decline. But whenever God's people <clears throat> are in spiritual decline and don't know it, inevitably they water down holiness and they remake God into sort of a user-friendly God of their own liking. And they compare themselves with others and say, I'm not so bad, you know, I'm doing pretty good, thanks. I'm not like that guy or that woman or those people over there that are killing people, you know, and terrorists and all of that. And, you know, God must be pretty happy with me because he's, he's a good old boy up there and he understands. So you pull God down, you lift yourself up, and you're in spiritual decline. When you come to God's word, and this is one reason I advocate reading God's word consecutively through, um, don't just read your favorite parts. I just got through reading about the dimensions of the tabernacle in Exodus, and that's a hard part. And then this morning was the golden calf, and that's a little more interesting, but sad commentary. Uh, and then I read in the Psalms this morning with Psalm 16, and, and also John 17 this morning, Jesus' prayer. But read it, and you get a view of who God is, and you get a view of your own heart. And like Isaiah, when he saw the Lord seated on the throne and the angels surrounding him and covering their faces and crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of, of hosts, Isaiah cried out, woe is me, for I'm ruined because I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And 
as I've often said before, it's like in the summer, maybe you're working out in the garden and it's hot and you're sweaty and you wipe your forehead with your hand and you don't realize how dirty you are. I mean, you know you're kind of dirty and need a shower. And then you go into the bathroom and you flip on the light and look in the mirror and you go, oh my goodness, I'm far worse than I thought I was. You know, you're covered with dirt. And the light has a way of doing that. And the light of God's word has a way of revealing the sin in our hearts so that we recognize our need for Jesus as our Savior. And if spiritual decline involves a watered-down view of sin and holiness, then revival is always, again, a resolve to deal with personal sin and to draw near to the Lord. And that's one reason, by the way, that I think it's important to observe the Lord's Supper as we do each week. It should be a reminder to you I'm coming before God. How's my heart? Have I turned from my sin? Am I trusting in the shed blood of Jesus as my only hope? Am I living in accordance with his word? A third mark of unspiritual or unconscious spiritual decline involves deafness to God's rebuke. Verse 10, though the pride of Israel testifies against him, Yet they've neither returned to the Lord their God, nor have they sought him for all this. Nor have they sought him for all this. If you have an NIV, and then there are many commentators, they interpret the pride of Israel to be Israel's arrogance. And that's a possible meaning. Many good commentators take that meaning. And then the verse is saying that Israel's own pride should have been a testimony against him, and yet they didn't return to the Lord or seek him. But the Hebrew word that is translated pride there can also have the meaning of exaltation or majesty. And one uh, scholarly German commentator, C.F. Kyle, lived back in the 19th century, Um, He interprets the phrase to be a reference to the Lord, who is Israel's glory. And if he is right, then Hosea is using irony to make his point. And he's saying, Israel boasts in being God's people, and yet they refuse to listen to the God in whom they boast. Um, But either interpretation, the bottom line is the same. Israel had plugged up their ears and wasn't listening to God's rebuke of their sin. And one way to determine whether you're in spiritual decline or not is to gauge how do you respond when either God's word or someone of God's people rebukes you for a sin? Do you, ah, no, that applies to other people, not to me, and shrug it off, or do you go before the Lord and accept it and try to deal with it? A fourth mark of unconscious spiritual decline involves ignorance of spiritual need. Yet he does not know it. And Hosea repeats that twice in verse 9. Strangers devour his strength, yet he doesn't know it. Gray hairs are sprinkled upon him, and yet he doesn't know it. Now, if you ask this person, how you doing? Everything's great. Boy, he's doing good. But... 
everyone else knows, uh, no, there's a problem here. The lukewarm Laodicean church said of themselves in Revelation 3.17, I'm rich, and I've become wealthy, and I have need of nothing. That wasn't God's evaluation of them. If you remember, God said they were wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. They needed to see their sad spiritual condition. G. Campbell Morgan said, Gray hair is not a tragedy, but failure to see it is. And so if you're increasingly aware of your need of God, your dependence on him, that's a good sign. If you go, no, ah, I'm doing great, no need, no, not so good. A final mark of unconscious spiritual decline, it's revealed when you turn to the world rather than to God for help in a time of trouble. Here Israel is being overrun by these pagan Assyrians, and these guys were bad. They were brutal, kind of like the um, ISIS in our day. And yet, guess who they were turning to, to for help? Assyria. Yeah, go figure. The very ones who were attacking them. And probably um, Hosea is referring to them paying tribute to uh, Assyria to get them, hold them off. In Hosea 5.13, Hosea says, When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to King Jerob, or that word can mean sent to the great king, but he is unable to heal you or cure you of your wound. Now, sometimes worldly methods work in the short term. It worked when they paid off the king of Assyria. He backed off for a while. But, you know, he was just taking the tribute, saying a bunch of suckers. I'm going to get them eventually. So he takes their money and builds up his armies. And finally, you know, he invades and takes over the northern kingdom. And sometimes you can turn to the world and say, it worked. Solved my problem. For a short time, probably did. But, you know, my theory or my theology of trials is God brings trials into our lives to drive us to seek him in a deeper way than we do when things are pretty calm and normal. And you see, when a trial comes, you can run to the world or you can get on your face before the Lord and say, Lord, I'm helpless against this enemy. And without you, you know, I am not going to survive. And so in Psalm 50, the Lord says, call on me in the day of trouble and I'll rescue you and you will honor me. That's the point. We honor God. We honor the one who delivers us. Or as Paul makes reference in Ephesians 3.8, to the unfathomable riches of Christ, you know, I always want to say, why did you go to this worldly thing when you've got the unfathomable riches of Christ you could lay hold of? That's the point in trials. So what's the answer then to spiritual decline? Well, first of all, evaluate yourself honestly. And to do that, I said there's that sheet back here and probably out there 
uh, that's got spiritual diagnostic questions on it to help you just go through the list and say, how am I doing? You know, do I need to change in some areas? And uh, that's, by the way, also on the church website under my blog, if you go there. But it'll tell you, how mixed up with the world are you? And is your commitment half-baked, or is it done on both sides? And if you become aware of a need, then the second thing to do is seek the Lord. And if you go back one chapter to Hosea chapter 6, he says, Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, but he will heal us. He has wounded us, but he will bandage us. He will revive us after two days. He'll raise us up on the third day that we may live before him. So let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. And so that's the answer, or as Isaiah 55, 6 says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the ungodly forsake his way and the wicked man his thoughts, and let him return to the Lord, and he will have compassion on him and to our God. And then I love this, for he will abundantly pardon. He will abundantly pardon if we turn back to him. And Psalm 130, verse 7 declares, For with the Lord there is loving kindness, and with him is abundant redemption. You come to the Lord, he's not going to zap you. He's going to welcome you like the father of the prodigal son. You know, the book of Hosea is interesting because Hosea is not your typical hard-nosed gloom and doom prophet. He's a prophet who portrayed God's message in his own life. If you've never read Hosea, I encourage you to read it. In the first three chapters, God gives the prophet the strangest command he ever gave to a prophet. He says, I want you to go and marry a prostitute. Can you imagine how that would hit the headlines today? Well-known pastor marries prostitute. Hello. He does it. He marries her. And true to form, she becomes unfaithful to him. And she ends up on the slave block. Up for purchase as a slave. And God says to Hosea, I want you to go and buy her back. Not as a slave, but as your wife. And he goes and he pays the price on the slave block. And he buys back Gomer, his errant wife, and loves her. And God says, that's a picture of my love for my errant people, Israel. And it's a picture that we have of the Lord Jesus, who paid the price on the cross to purchase a bride. She was an errant bride before she, he purchased her. We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But he sent his own son, and God loved us while we were yet sinners because Christ died for us. G. Campbell Morgan said, Sin, in the last analysis, in its most terrible form, is infidelity to love. It hurts God. And so, if you've noticed any gray hair this morning, Hosea says, turn back to the Lord, seek him, and you'll find mercy. He is a loving and gracious God, ready to forgive his people when they turn to him.
Dear Father, I pray that you would use your word to help us all grow in grace and in the knowledge of our wonderful Lord and Savior, who did not regard equality with you a thing to be selfishly grasped, but laid aside the glory he had with you and took on the form of a servant and was obedient to death, even death on a cross, that he might redeem a bride for himself. Help us, Lord, to extricate ourselves from all the garbage of this world, to live as a pure and holy people before you, and to give honor and glory to your name, that others may come to know your abundant mercy, I ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's all stand together. Thank you, Steve. Well, church, as we come into our holiday seasons, um, finishing up with Thanksgiving,